I think that making this a safer place to be is is good for everyone. So, but but the key is the right regulation and and not as it is kind of at the moment, just applying things that we apply to traditional financial institutions, sort of cut and paste to virtual asset service providers because it's, you know, it's not fit for purpose. Welcome to the I Also Want Money podcast, where our mission is to democratize, demystify, and demasculinize making money. My name's Nicole Kyle, and I'm here with my co-host, Sophie Holm, and co-producer, Harrison Comfort. Crypto as an asset and a market is volatile, and it's risky, and not as regulated as traditional markets. So how should individuals and institutions think about the micro and macro risks when it comes to investing in crypto? We have Paige Burgess on the podcast today, a U.S. and U.K. qualified lawyer who focuses on anti-money laundering, sanctions, and regulation in risky asset classes, including digital assets like cryptocurrency and the blockchain technology underpinning it. With Paige, we'll talk everything from the extent to which crypto is actually regulated to current questions around crypto as a factor in the Ukraine-Russia war and sanctions. Two terms we'll use throughout the conversation today. ICO. ICO means initial coin offering. This is what happens when a project, entity, or company brings tokens or cryptos to market. The second term we'll use, VASPs. That's an acronym for Virtual Asset Service Provider. So think crypto exchanges. With that, welcome Paige Burgess. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Paige, maybe to get us started, help us understand in your own words, how does your work as a lawyer relate to crypto? Sure. So firstly, to say this is not legal advice and all those sorts of disclaimers, but my practice focuses on anti-money laundering, anti-bribery and corruption, and sanctions, compliance, investigations, enforcement, all of that good stuff. So when it comes to crypto, we're seeing it come up with our clients in a few places. So first of all, clients are looking to invest in the crypto space, buy fintechs, think about investing in companies that uh, are launching ICOs, think about buying crypto themselves and think about using crypto. So in each of those places, we're helping them figure out how can they comply with applicable laws? What are the applicable laws? And what are some of the risks that they need to be thinking about? So you're helping entities be compliant with any laws and regulations that would impact crypto strategy, to use a broad term, and also helping them assess the risks as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And and the risks being from a, in particular, financial crime perspective. I'm curious. I know so much about crypto and blockchain in terms of how it's perceived in like the zeitgeist has changed in the last two years, maybe three years. It's really only been around since like 2012, 2013. Uh, but how has your outlook personally on crypto and blockchain evolved? Personally, it's evolved a lot. And as well as professionally. This isn't a space where a lot of people were looking, as you say before, really two or three years ago. At the moment, it seems to be on everyone's lips. Uh, And I personally think that that's great for a lot of reasons. A lot of the reasons that you talk about on your podcast, right? Like opening up 
financial services to be more inclusive, can be more accessible for people for different reasons. And also, you know, the use of technology um, for financial services, while it brings risks, it can also bring benefits. So from my perspective, I'm really excited for us as an industry to think about the positives in crypto and making sure we understand those use cases, but also applying the right compliance frameworks and helping regulators understand what laws are appropriate for the space. And I just wonder, even as you were describing the evolution, do you think, or in your experience, has there been a, a similar evolution when it comes to, like, just regulating other like digital behavior, like thinking about, you know, the web 2.0 push when companies started getting more into like social media. I know that might be a little bit out of your space, but do you see any uh, similarities there? I think a challenge that we're facing right now, and this is probably similar to any time that there's been a technological development, is that we try and apply old frameworks to new technologies into new use cases and probably probably can't think of many good examples actually where regulation has you know not done that mm-hmm. i mean if you th- even think about the securities and exchange act so the securities laws uh in the united states right those are from the 1920s Crazy. so we're still trying to apply these concepts of what a security was to you know, cryptocurrency, for example, and, and clearly that was totally outside the realm of anyone's contemplation at that time. In addition to just all of the other financial products that have come since then, can I just clarify one thing I said? So, yeah, the Securities Exchange Act and the securities laws that we operate under are from the 1930s. I'm going to generalize here, but my generalization is there's a perception of the legal profession being generally, again, quite conservative and risk-averse, but increasingly, and I think really positively, personally, I'm attending more panels that are, you know, theme is like lawyers for blockchain, and I even interviewed just a a few months ago a privacy lawyer on self-sovereign identity under Web3 and blockchain. What does it mean for crypto, in your opinion, that more lawyers are working on it and maybe even, like dare I say, bullish on it? As I mentioned it's positive overall in the sense that if we don't get the rules and regulations right with respect to crypto, there is a risk that as an industry, um, there may be a knee-jerk reaction and and things might end up being shut down. Um, But the more that we have smart people looking at it and working on it, trying to understand it, and trying to think of the ways where it can be regulated, and, and can be safe, uh, then that allows for, I think, increased adoption. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think most who invest in crypto know adoption is key to long-term value. And I know that obviously this topic of quote regulation in crypto is a little bit controversial and there's differing opinions in the space, but personally I'm right with you, Paige. The more regulation there is, the more adoption will increase and that's going to be better for everyone uh, who's invested in the space. Um, so for example, if you look at enforcement actions in the U S yeah, 
the result has been that those um, you know, exchanges or ICOs, whatever it may be, they just say, no U.S. investors. We can't have U.S. clients. Mm, okay. Um, and so what would be better is to have a framework in which exchanges and um, providers of services can can feel comfortable offering those services rather than just pulling out. It goes back to our original point of that's the only way to really equalize participation in this space um, as, as well, which is important. Um, okay. I also wanted to touch on, because I, I know you've worked in international development and it's been a passion for you for so many years, uh, even if outside of, of your day-to-day. How, how does crypto and blockchain relate to international development in, in your view? One thing about blockchain in particular, which people um, I think have a difficulty understanding, including myself, is although it is pitched as anonymous and in many ways it is, the, the, the blockchain, the, the flows themselves are actually fully public. So when it comes to um, trying to make payments, for example, um, to the developing world, at the moment, a lot of times that just happens in cash, and that's completely untraceable. So maybe you can make a, a bank transfer, for example, to, to Turkey, but then quite often aid workers literally have to carry that cash across the border to Syria um, in order wow. to distribute it to people in need. And that's that's completely untraceable, right? That's that's not end-to-end. And of course they're doing checks, but it's, it's manual, it's paper-based. Um, whereas I've heard of you know, development organizations, donations being used on the blockchain where you have that full visibility end to end that it goes, you know, from point A to point B to point C. And so, you know, that's all public that that money has gotten there. Um, And it may not be, you know, it's not necessarily public the, the name of the person, right, or right. persons who've received it. But it's at least there on the chain that it's it's ended up in the, the wallet it's supposed to end up on in. So, Paige, I want to transition a little bit to the risks to the individual and the economy given crypto and, and blockchain because you, you are in the business, literally, of assessing the risks. So we know crypto is obviously a very volatile asset. We're experiencing some of that volatility right now. Uh, and that that narrative around vol- volatility is very important for investors to like realize before getting into the space. It's something mm-hmm. I emphasize when friends ask me about it. Another narrative that is very prevalent is uh, crypto is unregulated, and we hear that all the time. That narrative, I, to my to my understanding, is actually not as necessarily true as it might seem on the surface. So, you know, to ask you, the expert, what to what extent is crypto re- regulated? The, the first point is that a large chunk of actors in the crypto space are regulated for anti-money laundering purposes. Uh, so virtual asset service providers, as the, the term is used um, by the Financial Action Task Force, which is the, the standard setter globally for anti-money laundering controls that countries have to put in place, are required to comply with anti-money laundering controls, which means identifying their customers and verifying that identity. 
Um, so clearly there are some challenges with who is a VASP. Um, is it a truly decentralized organization with no structure, in which case y- you can't really identify that controlling mind and say that they're a virtual asset service provider that, that has to comply with those laws? So those challenges are being ironed out, but you know, a large chunk of the market re- are um, VASPs and are required to identify and verify. So that's that's kind of the first thing. The the second one is related to more prudential regulations, as you mentioned about the volatility. So within the U.S., there are certain regulators that that will look at different pieces um, of crypto. So for example, I mean it's an it's an asset that's taxed. You have to report it. So you've got tax authorities that are looking at it. Um, It can also be considered a commodity that's regulated under commodities laws, but it could also be considered a security, which has to meet certain requirements related to disclosures to the public about the safety and the volatility of the instrument. So that, yes, so there are different places where it could be regulated. You know, other parts of the world, like the EU, the UK, are, are still trying to deal with the more prudential parts of it. The UK came out with some some rules about advertising in crypto again to ensure that that the public is aware of the risks um so i think all of that's very important different countries are at different stages of dealing with it but it it's certainly not accurate to say that it's it's completely unregulated can can you maybe uh, expand a little bit on when crypto and i suppose specific to the us when crypto is uh regulated as a security versus when it's regulated as a commodity? Is that still a gray area or is there like a hard, a hard line? So the critical case to determine whether a product is considered a security in the U.S. Um, is under a case called the SEC versus Howey. Uh, and this is known as the Howey test. And this is a case as well from quite a while ago, from the 1940s. Um, but it's still the defining test for any instrument being considered a security. Um, and the SEC has applied it in the case of crypto assets um, that have been advertised in the U.S. So the key question is whether there's an investment of money in a common enterprise so that you can you know, identify uh, a sort of common entity. The third is whether there's a reasonable expectation of profits, and four, as a result of the efforts of others. Um, so what this is really saying is, when I hand over my money to an identifiable entity, am I expecting them to do something that yields a profit for me. So right when you invest in uh, a share of a company, you think that company is going to um, take some steps to become more profitable and give you a return on your investment. Um, So that's the key test here as well with a crypto asset is, you know, what are you expecting to get out of that? Um, so in in a recent case, which was related to a, an, a company called BlockFi, they were advertising uh, a tool and the words they were using were for investors to build their wealth. They promoted great interest rates. They offered um, investors uh, 
to lend the crypto assets in exchange for monthly interest payments in crypto. So you know, thinking about that Howey test, you can really see how you know this is asking for that investment of money and it's, it's actually promising those profits right, as a result of something that uh, BlockFi w- would be doing um, with, with the money, with the investment. Um, you know, so in that case, the SEC found that these BI, BIAs uh, offered by BlockFi were considered securities under the Howey test. And therefore, what BlockFi should have done before offering the product is filed um, registration with the SEC um, explaining what the you know the product was and making sure that they met those those requirements before offering them to investors. The BlockFi example really resonates with me. I wasn't banking with them, but I have a lot of friends who were to collect crypto interests, expressly what you're talking about, and that those friends are in the U.S. and that's not happening right now. So yeah, it's it's the stuff happens. Uh, I guess every day in this in the space that that's the Howey test, and then the commodity definition is just a, it's a commo- something is a commodity if like fill in the blank. So a commodity is is really just more of a a fungible asset um, that that represents a store of value. Um, so, for example, Bitcoin is a commodity because it represents a store of value, um, and Clearly, the the value can change, right? Like any commodity, like gold, the value of gold can change. Um, but when you buy that and hold it, you are not expecting anyone to do something um, in order to change the value of the the thing that you hold, basically. That raises a really great point, which is, you know, do, do you agree that under existing law, like not all cryptos are treated equally? And they shouldn't be, in my opinion. They are very different, like layer ones, layer twos, Bitcoin versus Ethereum, all of that. Um, they definitely are, and and they also should be. But I think what's the more complicated question and what we really need to get to terms with as an industry is the the who is offering the crypto asset and how mm. so decentralized finance versus exchange versus dow versus peer to peer that that's what we really need to get a handle on um is is how these things are being offered um and by whom and and how can that be how can a, a layer of control be placed on that to make it safer for everyone. Yeah. Would you say that that's one of the, I mean, it kind of sounds like it's the top gray area when it comes to this regulating the space right now, the who and the how you classify them? I mean, I think so. I think so. And, you know, decentralized finance is thrown around as well. But so often, even when we're saying that there really is a controlling mind, of of you know some of these DAOs, for example, there are there are buildings and there are people who make salaries, you know, w- working on a project, and and you know I think we need to be regulating DeFi is probably worth its whole ep- its own episode. 
<laughs> so I, uh, yes, it's, it's so complicated and it's, um, you know, we're kind of, it's a tip of the iceberg of what we're talking about today. But I, it, I also wanted to ask, because just as your friend, one of the great things, you know, you've helped me with is you're always sending like great tools to help me better understand like compliance in the space and, and what's going on with, with crypto and, and risk and sanctions. So just for the benefit of everyone listening, what tools would you recommend crypto investors use to mitigate risk? Well, so there are a lot of uh, blockchain analysis providers now. Yeah. And they they come out with some really good stuff um so i don't necessarily want to name names and to 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 show any preference but pretty easy to find there's also industry groups um in the uk there's crypto uk which which recently announced which is kind of a consortium of some of these blockchain analysis providers and fintechs and and others um active in the space who are trying to work closely with government um, to help them understand how that works, help them you know, right-size the risks and right-size the regulation. Um, so definitely follow all of those. At the moment, a lot of reports coming out now about typologies. Um, of course, I follow enforcement cases, guidance from the U.S. regulators, OFAC, the sanctions regulator, or um, FinCEN, which is the AML regulator. And they have some, some notices about the use of cryptocurrencies to evade sanctions and red flags of, of spotting money laundering risks. And so those are some of the places where, where, where I follow, but also to, to demystify as a, on a, you know, more personal level as a, if you're thinking about purchasing any crypto assets, the, the red flags aren't that different than traditional investing. And I think that's an important thing to, to get out there. So for example, if you think about an ICO, it's, it's like anything else. What, who's behind it? What are they offering? Um, does their website look real? Do the backgrounds of the people look legitimate and look like people who know what they're talking about? Or are there misspellings, right? Um, is it like the email that you get from, you know, unnamed country prince asking for money? You know, people have invested and lost tons of money in in ICOs where there were really clear, just classic signs of, of fraud. Look at the white paper. I suppose that's, that's one typology that's specific to, to cryptocurrency is look at the white paper, but actually, you know, you can pay someone to write a white paper for you. So does it look like the same white paper you read yesterday from a, you know, a different potential project or is it, is it actually, does it actually have a use case as well? So that's, I mean, that's a, just a good indicator of, of maybe it might be a good idea. But as well, if it doesn't have a good use case, then, you know, could, could be more likely that it's a fraud. You know, so there's pretty major examples like BitConnect, which are just really classic Ponzi schemes. And these have been around for, for ages and ages. So is it too good to be true? Is it promising guaranteed returns? Especially, uh, you know, a good indicator uh, or benchmark is if the returns are above the the Federal Reserve rate, right? That's all, what we all want to find. Right. But if they're promising that they can give it to you, that's, you know, that's probably a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Or even worse, not necessarily a Ponzi scheme, may just be what's called a rug pull, right? Where they just right. take all the money and, and run off with it. You know, and, and in terms of who's offering it, you know, are they regulated? Is it is it a, a known name? 
if it's not regulated or they don't say anything about that, do you do you think it needs to be, right? So are you not seeing anything about SEC, SEC registration, but this is kind of looking and sounding like a, a security to you under the Howey test, in which case, you know, they may be legitimate, right? They may They may mean what they're saying, but you may end up out of pocket anyway because they're going to get enforced against and you know end up you'll end up losing your investment anyway be discerning do your own research be skeptical i think like skepticism is probably one of the healthiest things you can embody in this space when you're trying to invest and i think all of the the methods and resources you mentioned there are are super helpful i want to pick up on what what we've touched on a little bit so far, but crypto and sanctions, of course, and you know, the current environment we're in, this is, this is a really hot topic. Uh, one of the things creating a lot of complexity here is, of course, again, that balance between transparency and the blockchain, but also anonymity. The ultimate question I think here becomes, is crypto, in fact, actually more likely to be used by bad actors? What's your take on that? Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily more likely. The way up to now that sanction persons and sanctioned countries have tended to participate in crypto is is actually through ransomware. So North Korea, the Lazarus Group, Russian hackers, clearly very well known for extracting ransomware payments in cryptocurrency. So I think, you know, they tend to use it more as a money generator. Then there's also mining. So Iran does a lot of crypto mining. Venezuela has their own um, national cryptocurrency. So that, that's that's how they've tended to participate in, in crypto up to now. In terms of sort of mass sanctions evasion from oligarchs in Russia or just, you know, the Russian economy in general, there isn't enough cryptocurrency in circulation for mass um, sanctions evasion through the use of cryptocurrencies. Another thing is getting money out of the crypto space, you know, off the blockchain, so to speak, is is getting increasingly difficult in part because of increased awareness and the number of uh an- the number the number of companies now who are undertaking blockchain analysis and and some are actually releasing reports for free that they're, you know, it, because it's public, right? You can you can go and have a look um, if you know how to do that, which I don't. But you can go and have a look, and you can s- notice patterns. And so a lot of uh, you know some companies are coming up and saying, "Look, we're just seeing all of these movements over here," and you know, so we kind of think that you know this this might not be good. And and not that many places yet accept cryptocurrency. And so there have been examples, right, where there have been these large hacks. And the hackers actually haven't been able to use the crypto that they've stolen because even though they're moving it around, you know, people can follow that the, the, that's ultimately the stolen cryptocurrency. Um, and in some cases, then they've just, you know, they've returned it um, or offered to return it um, in order to, you know, basically get a kind of you know, ransom um, in reward for returning it um, that they could actually freely use. Uh, so I think, yeah, so those are some of the reasons why sort of mass sanctions evasion isn't possible. But I mean, clearly, clearly like anything, bad people are going to use any asset, gold, cash, 
cryptocurrencies to to try and get around things. Yeah. So I think what we're hearing there is from a a government, like let's take the Russia-Ukraine war, for example, crypto's kind of been at the the forefront with that, both on the one hand, raising significant funds and relief dollars for the Ukraine, but also this conversation around, hey, is Russia as a government, as a country going to use crypto to evade sanctions? I think what we're hearing is mass evasion won't happen. Individual evasion probably happens the same way it happens with cash. Is that fair? I, I think that's definitely fair to say. Yeah. And it's important for people to know, I think, because it's easy to, especially something maybe you haven't had as much exposure to or or don't fully understand yet. Of course, you know, it's concerning when we hear uh, that that evasion can happen. But I think it is about putting it into perspective that, look, it could happen with cash as well. We're in an extended dip in the crypto market some, right now. Some even say coming up on a crypto winter. As a result... Of that, what are you looking most closely at given regulation, sanctions, and, and the, the clients that, that you advise? Does that dip have an effect on, on your work? Um, so I, I think that this is a really good time to do a stock take mm-hmm. and, and maybe use this time and this cooling period to put in place the right infrastructure for the next phase. In order to achieve more mass adoption, it, it needs to be an asset that can be used to, to buy and sell things more readily, right? Um, so even, um, you know, so-called stable coins. Um, not so stable. Which suppo- <laughs> which <we> not <laughs> so stable, right? <laughs> yeah. So they're supposed to be more of a measure of value. Um, they're supposed to be a bit more fungible. I mean, so and they're supposed to be like quote technically not securities, right? Because they're not like promising an increase on in your and it's it's not like the entity. It's not like the goal is to increase your investment in a stable coin. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think next steps would be for governments to get involved in you know, their own stable coins. Right. There's no reason yeah. really why the the dollars and, and, and pounds that are issued in paper can't be on the blockchain. Um, it's so, so I think that that's, you know, if we can, if we can get there and that can become just more of a regular part and, and people then are just able to use cryptocurrencies, whether that's, you know, the government, you know, backed, um, stable coin. I, and then I think that will make it easier to, exchange some of the more volatile coins with a, a, a sort of government-backed stable coin that can actually be used as fiat currency. One of the reasons that we experience such volatility in crypto is that by and large, investors, retail or institutional investors view crypto as a risky asset. So you get these mass sell-offs when like interest rates go up and just when there's even no, quote, normal equities market volatility. What do you think it will take for crypto to not be seen as purely a risk asset? So, yeah, I won't pretend to be absolutely any good at investing or measuring more prudential risk, as it were. But where, where some original crypto asset fans will really decry regulation, I, I think that making this a safer place to be is is good for everyone. So, but but the key is the right regulation and and not 
as it is kind of at the moment, just applying things that we apply to traditional financial institutions, sort of cut and paste to virtual asset service providers because it's, you know, it's not fit for purpose. It's not fit for a lot of the, the categories of, of who and how that we, that we mentioned earlier. Bit of a square, square peg round whole thing with, <laughs> with that. Well, we spent our time today talking about crypto and, and blockchain. We didn't really get too much into the NFTs piece. And I know there's been, of course, a lot of issues with money laundering and Ponzi schemes in the NFT space and all that. What's your outlook on how maybe NFT projects differ from some of the conversations we're talking about with, with crypto today? Or is it, look, the same, the same concerns apply? So NFTs, I think, clearly lend themselves to a bit more of the insider trading. That can certainly happen with ICOs as well or or with anything. But with NFTs, I think we're seeing a lot of kind of pump and dump, you know, someone knows that it's it's coming, they buy a lot of it and then generates interest and then they, you know, sell high and it crashes because it's not really worth anything. Of course, it's same kind of rug pull that the NFT is never delivered or it's it's not actually what they claimed the NFT was going to be. Um, I think so. I, I can't even remember where I heard this. M- maybe it was on your podcast. Um, maybe I'll tell you if it was. Yeah, <laughs> but but someone said something about make make the NFT for the collector, not the prospector. Oh, so maybe, maybe that was Jennifer Chang from Playform. It sounds like her. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and I I just I I loved that. I loved that because anything can have value if people ascribe value to it. And I think we're kind of struggling to figure out well, what's the value with NFTs? At the moment, it's prone to a lot of inflated value um, because of kind of bad actors. So I think if we're a bit more, um, I mean, this is just me being idealistic, but I think if we're just a bit more, you know, pure <laughs> about our intentions with NFTs as an industry, then it, they can kind of serve the purpose that they're meant to serve a bit better. Yeah. And, and I think that it also is a reflection of the relative difference in the clarity around utility in crypto and like native tokens of blockchains versus NFTs, at least how NFTs are being used today, which is why to me personally, anyway, like NFT markets and projects have always felt at this point more speculative than an investment in ether or an investment in Bitcoin or whatever else for me. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I think that's helpful. Thanks for touching on that. So Paige, our last question of the day, as always, we ask all of our guests, what is your I also statement? My I also statement is I also can figure this out. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Because I have listened to so many podcasts, including yours, and um, done a lot of work trying to figure out what ERC20 means. <laughs> um, and you know what? I also can figure it out. Yes, you can. And anyone listening can too. Well, Paige, thank you so much for your time today, for your expertise, for always being willing to share. Uh, it's it's so helpful. And I think you really helped dispel some of the things that maybe make people afraid of learning about the space or dipping their toe in. And you've also given some, some great, uh, not legal advice, but some great insight around how to think about these yeah. things. So I appreciate it so much. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, join us in the I also movement. This means take to your social platforms and post a hashtag I also statement. 
follow us on Instagram at I also podcast. And of course, subscribe. This podcast is produced by Harrison Comfort and the theme tune is by Malin Linnea.